0: As you uh, make your way back to your seat, if you would grab your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. We're into the book of Ephesians chapter 2. If we haven't met, my name is Dustin, Uh, not to be confused with the Dustin who uh, you saw a picture of earlier. That's a different Dustin. There are now two of us, which is very confusing. Uh, We're into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Ephesians, uh, really just passage by passage this fall, and uh, we'll finish up at the end of the year. And today we are into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It's page 1160 in those blue hardback Bibles. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. Uh, There are blue Bibles all throughout the room. Just grab one of those, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, page 1160. 160. Uh, With that in mind, friend, let's hear from God's word. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray together. Father, your word tells us of many great things, and Father, I ask that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would see everything that you would have us to see in this section of Ephesians. Holy Spirit, we need you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Men don't want to be alone. This is the great secret that my wife has revealed to me in the last couple of months. Men don't want to be alone. We want to be left alone. Did you catch that? There's a difference. On Saturdays, I don't want to be alone at my house. I just want to be left alone so I can, like, watch football and stuff. (laughs) Because if I'm all alone, then the weight of loneliness seems to weigh heavily on me. You know, when you think about loneliness being isolated, alienated, that's all over the passage this morning. And what I want to suggest to you as you think about your experience of loneliness, just keep something in mind. Um, And this is true, especially if you're a guy and you just like to be left alone, (laughs) right? But you're also, you don't want to be totally alone. Uh, You know, when you and I think about loneliness, we often think about a certain age in life. What's the age in life we were really worried about being lonely? Usually like young adulthood, middle school through, I don't know, mid-20s. That age is racked, especially for middle schoolers and high schoolers, by a fear of being socially isolated and left alone. In fact, as like you see like friend groups form, you know, and if you're a middle school, or high school, you vividly know what I'm talking about. There are friend groups that get formed. And the greatest fear that you often have, or I would have, is what? Falling through the cracks between the friend groups, right? The cliques. Uh, that's what sometimes people will call them. Well, I, you know, I used to be a youth pastor, so I thought about that quite a lot because I wanted people to break through their cliques and everything, and I read a book to try to help me understand that aspect of teenage life, and it was written by a youth, per, youth ministry professor, if you can believe it, down in California, and uh, what this professor did to try to understand cliques and how teenagers grow up, he wrote a book called Hurt, and it was his personal account of leaving the seminary, and this professor, to understand teenagers, you know what he did? He became a substitute high school teacher for a year to try to understand the life experience of lonely teenagers. And uh, you don't have to read the book, guess what the defining experience of high schoolers is? That of being hurt and being alone, feeling lonely. And what's fascinating about that book is he suggests that you know, his theory as a you know, kind of a psychologist, as a youth ministry professor, is that actually what middle school and high school cliques are, are not so much groups you know, to hate other groups. It's actually a survival tribe. That there is an element of teenage life that no parent, no teenager, or no, no, per, no teacher can really enter in except the teenagers themselves. They're in their own social world. And so what happens is out of fear, teenagers form little survival tribes. Uh, you know, what is it called? You circle the, the text messages. Yeah, that's what you do, <laughs> right? What I want to suggest to you also is that that fear of being alone, of being alienated from other people, of never quite breaking in, um, it, it stays with us. This is why men don't want to be alone. You carry it with you for the rest of your life. This is why things like divorce are so painful, is because it's an utter sense of alienation, of not knowing a place. It's interesting to me that that's where Paul begins this section. Look down at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He's just been talking about the incredible aspect of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith. And now he's going to go through and say, okay, here's what it means. Therefore, therefore, knowing the gospel, everything we talked about last week, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called derogatorily the uncircumcision, By the people who call themselves circumcised. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants. And if that wasn't clear enough, remember, Gentiles, before Christ entered your life, you had what? What does verse 12 say? No hope, and you are atheos, without God, in this world. Paul begins. Our section ultimately by reminding us of that deep sense of loneliness that you and I all have. And yet what he says is that deep sense of loneliness actually comes not just from being unreconciled to other people, but actually not knowing God and being reconciled to him. The most important relationship you have, friend, is your relationship with God. It's the only relationship that's going to go on for eternity. He is your true father. And if you get that relationship fixed, you may actually be surprised by what happens horizontally in your relationship with other people. At least that's what this section is suggesting. So what is it that Paul's driving at? Well, I'm gonna give you sort of a basic outline and let's see if you can hang with me. We're gonna look at verses 11 through 13, then 14 through 18, and then the last section is gonna be 19 through 22. So if you wanna outline, that's it. 11 through 13, 14 through 18, 19 through 22. So, look at verse 11. Let's look at our first section. What are we supposed to understand? You're supposed to understand, friend, who you are, who you are, and who I am. That's the first thing. You know, you ever heard that old Greek philosophy saying, know thyself? Well, it's not just about knowing who you are, it's also knowing who God is. Who are we? That's what Ephesians is all about. In fact, If you've been here for a few weeks, you may remember vaguely that I've used kind of a strange way of talking about it, but if you were to understand the book of Ephesians, if you want to remember what this book is all about, chapters one, two, and three are all about the indicatives of the gospel. Indicative is the verbal tense for what is. Basically, it's a way of saying Ephesians one, two, and three tell you who God is and who you are and who we are as his church. There are hardly any commands A command verb is called an imperative. Clean up your room, right? You are my beloved child, clean up your room. Indicative, you are my beloved child. Imperative, clean up your room, right? Well, chapters four, five, and six in Ephesians are all of the imperatives. What does it mean to really live like a Christian? What does it mean to live like somebody who's redeemed? So Ephesians one, two, and three are all about who we are and who God is. But saying that, our passage here has the only command verb in the whole section. Look down at Ephesians 2, verse 11. This is the only time in Ephesians 1, 2, or 3 that you are told to do something. It's the only imperative verb. And what is it? Look at verse 11. It's an imperative to remember who we were before Christ. The indicative, then the commands. Basically what Paul is saying As he's speaking, we we learn clearly that the church in Ephesus at this time is made up of ethnically non-Jewish people. So if you were to, you know, look at, you know, racial divides in our country, we're looking at them differently than how they would have looked at them during Jesus's time and Paul's time. What was the great racial divide in Jesus's day? Anybody know? It was between Jews, that is the descendants of a man named Abraham. And what was the physical sign that you were a Jew? What What would happen to you when you were a child? You weren't baptized, you were circumcised. And there was a physical sign that you were different. And you also did what? How else else would you know a Jew by a non-Jew? Would they have gone to the barbecue and gotten pulled pork? No. They ate differently. They worshiped differently. Once a week, they had the audacity to do what? Not work. They rested because they remembered that God created our world in six days and rested on one, so they don't work one day a week. All of these various ways that Jews were distinct, they followed their own dietary laws, the men did their hair certain ways, they wore prayer tassels, all of these ways that distinguished who the children of Abraham were from all of the other Gentiles. What is a Gentile? Look down at that word right there. You know, Paul is talking to Christians who are Gentiles, but what does that mean? Gentiles in the flesh, that means, you know, by birth or, you know, who they are ethnically. And the reason I I use the word ethnic is because that's literally what the word is in Greek. In the original, what Paul says is, remember that you were at one time the ethne, all the different people groups, the peoples, the ethnic groups. And what Paul is saying is, remember all the non-Jewish believers in Jesus, what your life was like before you knew Christ. And Paul brings up the racial tension he says, remember Gentiles, remember people groups, you know, according to your flesh and your ancestors, remembered, remember that you used to be called the uncircumcision right there. That is a, a euphemism for another word that I will not say because we're in polite company. <laughs> but needless to say, Paul says, remember there used to be a racial slur that people could say about you and they thought themselves circumcised. And remember Gentiles that you were separated from Christ, alienated. You weren't members of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of hope, and you had no hope in this world. Now, this sounds like all the bad news, of course, but this is just what Paul does in Ephesians, because look at verse 13. He says, remember all the different people groups that didn't know the true God, that didn't know the Old Testament, that didn't know the promises of Israel. Remember this, though. In Christ Jesus, now, now that God has come into our world, now that he has entered our world in the flesh through the womb of Mary, God has opened a door for all of the people groups to know God, to be saved, and for the racial groups of this world to be reconciled to each other. How has He done this? Look at verse 13. "But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off that is the Gentiles, have now been what, brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what are we supposed to do with this section? What are we supposed to understand? I mean, okay, so uh, this is a lot of theology, okay? I'm just gonna, I'm, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, bury the lead. This is a lot of theology, so just hang with me for just a second, okay? Because at some point, you gotta use your brain if you're gonna know the Bible, right? And y'all have wonderful brains, so try to hang with me for just a second. If you were to try to understand the story of the Bible, it is a very clear story, and you should know the basics of what I'm about to say. The more you understand what I'm about to say, the, the easier it's going to be to kind of understand where the Bible is going and why Jesus is such a big deal, and also why God has torn down the racial divides that we would think define our world, okay? So let me just, let's just check that. So one of the things that Paul says is that the people groups, you know, of which I, I am not Jewish, for the record, I am, I'm also not Costa Rican. I descend from places like Ireland and England, as you maybe could have guessed. But my point is, is that I'm part of this group of Gentiles. Not everybody in the room is a Gentile. There are some ethnically Jewish people in the room, but primarily we're Gentiles, y'all, okay? We're just Gentiles. (laughs) Not everybody, and that would be like Ephesians, right? Apparently, Paul thinks a lot of them are Gentiles because he says, hey, you Gentiles. So what is it that we're supposed to see? Well, we don't know who the Messiah is. Left to ourselves, we don't know who the true God is. We worship all of these false gods, We try to strive, we strive to find God, but we don't know the truth. And the Gentiles did not know God's holy word in the Old Testament. And of course they weren't citizens of Israel, because we were citizens of foreign nations that worship foreign gods. And what's interesting, though, is what Paul says in verse 12 is he says, You are strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning that you don't understand what the covenants were all about. So what in the world is a covenant? What is the world in a covenant? To understand this. I think, it is to understand pretty much the Bible. Uh, and that's not an overstatement. What is a covenant? Anybody know? A covenant, uh, you can remember this, you can write it down. A covenant is a solemn bond sealed in blood. A solemn bond between two parties that's sealed in blood. That's why marriage is a covenant. Okay, it is a solemn bond. But if you read the Old Testament, you'll know that God makes certain defining covenants all throughout the Old Testament that give shape to the whole story of humanity. And if you don't know these basic covenants, it's like trying to understand a human body but not understand the skeleton or even know a skeleton exists. I mean, what gives shape to a human body? It's it's a skeleton. If you don't understand skeletons, why would the human look this way? This is the skeleton, the story of God. All right, so what's the first covenant we see in the Bible? What's the first solemn bond? The first, and this is a promise, It's a promise from God that the people groups, the nations didn't know. The first promise is to a man named Noah. In Genesis 9, God makes a promise to know what's the solemn bond that God says. I will never again, what? Flood the earth. In fact, what God is promising you and I is that he is going to redeem this world Not destroy it in a fit of rage, but because God loves this world, he is committed to it. And God is so committed to this world that he's given us a sign of that covenant promise that whenever we see it, we can remember that God is committed to us in our world. What's the sign of that covenant? The rainbow. God makes another important covenant. In fact, I'm not even being hyperbolic here, and I'm kind of a hyperbolic person. These are the most important verses in the Bible. It's Genesis 12, 1 through three. Most important verses, they give shape to everything else. It's like the spine of the skeleton. God takes a man named Abram, and in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm gonna take you from the pagans, worshiping all these false gods, and I'm going to make of you a people that will outnumber the stars, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And he says, but here's why, so that this one man, Abraham, who has this huge lineage that we will know as the people of Israel, the Jews, he says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. So the charter mission, according to Genesis 12:1 through three of Israel is to what? Be a distinct nation. And they are distinct because they are going to bless all of the other people groups, the ethne of the world. And what's the sign of that promise? That you, if you were part of Abraham's descendants, what sign do you get? How do you know that you're one of the children of Abraham? You get circumcised on the eighth day. Of course, God gives another covenant. And this one is also incredibly important. God makes a covenant with a man named Moses and you've probably heard of this covenant the solemn bond because God delivers the descendants of Abraham out of Egypt and he brings them out of slavery and he gives them something you may know as the 10 commandments the bible calls it the book of the covenant and God makes a solemn bond with the people of Israel this is exodus 24 and what is the terms of the covenant with Moses God makes a covenant with Moses on behalf of Moses and all the people of Israel and he says if you obey these laws If you obey all the laws in the Old Testament, if you obey all these laws, the Ten Commandments, you know, all the dietary laws, you will get what? What's the solemn promise? They will get the promised, anybody know? The promised what? The promised land, right? But if they break the covenant and they don't follow God's law, they will be removed from the land. And then to seal that covenant, Moses takes some blood and he sprinkles all the people with the blood. And he says, you've now received the sign of the covenant. He spritzes them with the blood of the covenant. You may think, okay, that's enough, Dustin. I'm not done. (laughs) God makes another covenant, another solemn bond that is crucial to understanding the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God takes the king of Israel, a man named David, who is a man after God's own heart. And he says, of all those people groups, all those descendants from Abraham, that one man, all these descendants, all those people, the Messiah who is going to reign forever is going to come from your specific line. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the son of David, the true King of Israel, the true Messiah is going to be the son of David. And then the last covenant in the Bible We see God raises up this nation. They are the people of Israel. They are distinct. They are circumcised. They have a king. But do they succeed in their mission? Are they distinct from the nations? Do they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? No, they fail in the mission, and God has to remove them from the promised land. And, of course, he brings them back. But as he brings them back at the end of the Old Testament story, we may think that the the project failed. But actually, in Jeremiah 31... God makes a promise and he says, one day, one day, I will make a new covenant, a new covenant. Better than the covenant of Noah, better than the covenant of Abraham, better than the covenant of Moses, better than anything you could imagine. Because in this new covenant, I will write my law, not on tablets of stone, but where? He says, on human hearts. And all people will know me not because I wrote laws in stone, but because I wrote, I wrote my law in their heart, and I will wipe away all of their sins forever. And friends, when Jesus Christ enters our world, when God enters the womb of Mary, and he's born a human, he is what? He is the true son of David. He is the fulfillment of all of the Mosaic laws. He fulfills all of Moses' laws. And he is the ultimate child of Abraham, who has come to bring salvation to all of the nations. And he is the promise of the covenant with Noah, that God is not going to destroy our world. He is committed to saving it. And on the night when Jesus is betrayed, he takes bread and a cup and he says, what? This cup is the what? The new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Friends, the reason I bring up all of this is this is what all of history is building up towards. The revealing of who Jesus Christ is, the whole story of the Old Testament, the whole story of Israel is all meant to reveal to us Jesus Christ, the Savior, not just of the Jews, but for all people so that all people could come to know the one true God. Friends, this is the greatest news you could ever possibly hear because it pertains to everyone in this room. So how are we supposed to respond to this? I mean, God, that, that's, that was too much theology. It's too much for me to remember. How are we supposed to respond? An easy application is just to remember this. If you were to look at Ephesians 11 through 13, and if you're a Gentile, just keep this in mind. (laughs) The gospel humbles you and me. We have been grafted into the tree. We used to have no hope. Now we have hope. Apart from God's mercy, we would have no hope in this world. But God has saved us. You know, when you really become a Christian, two things happen in your heart that seem contradictory, but they're not. And those two things, number one is you and I are humbled in ways that we never thought we needed. And so when the Bible says things like, you were dead in your sins, we think, yeah, I really was. And when the Bible says you had no hope for your life except from Christ, you think, man, I really didn't have any hope. And yet the Bible also lifts you to heights you never thought possible because God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. God is offering you an opportunity to live with him forever. So the point is not to wallow in your sin and hate yourself. It's to take in more and more the love of God on your life, to be humbled and yet lifted high. Only the gospel can really do that. So how does God accomplish all of this? I mean, this is, this is huge, right? God saves sinners. God is calling people from every racial group to come to know him. That's what I'm suggesting to you. So how is this possible? How did God accomplish this? Well, that's what verses 14 through 18 explain. Look at verse 14. Paul goes on, he says, this is how it all happened, because Jesus became our peace, our reconciler, and he has made us both one, that is Jews and Gentiles, And he has broken down in his flesh, that is by dying on the cross, he has broken down what? The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he can create in himself one new man in place of the two. All right, so that's Paul at his most theological, but what is he saying right here? He's echoing the Old Testament. He's echoing all of the promises of the Old Testament. Remember when I was saying the Old Testament all points to Jesus? When he says he himself is our peace, he's just quoting Micah 5.5. 5. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet. And what does Jesus do? How does he bring peace? Because when he died on the cross in his flesh, what Jesus did is he threw open the door of salvation. He threw open the door to being reconciled to God. To knowing God's love he did it so that it could happen by faith alone before Christ came if you wanted to be right with God what did you have to do you had to follow all the Old Testament laws and if you're a guy and you were a Gentile guess what unpleasant thing happened to you you can take a wild guess if you were a Jew and you sinned which you always sin every time you sin if you were a Jew what did you have to do if you were a sinner and you were Jewish, what did you do? You couldn't just say, hey, God, please forgive me on Sunday. Okay, I did my confession of sin this morning. No, if you sinned and you were Jewish in the Old Testament, what would you do? You had to go to your priest, you had to tell him what you did, and then you had to bring a what? You had to bring an animal sacrifice. And if your priest was worth his salt, he'd be like, no way, you can't just give a dove for that. That's terrible. Come back and bring a bull, right? It's the kind of stuff the priest would have to do. The priest would hear your confession, and then he'd tell you what you had to sacrifice, and then thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of animals were killed and their blood was spilled. And eventually what the New Testament will say is, don't you think that was an object lesson? After thousands of animals, don't you think there was an object lesson in that? That the blood of bulls and goats can't really deal with sin. So you know what God did? God became a man who perfectly fulfilled Moses' laws, all of them, without missing a beat. And then he became the blood sacrifice. And he put an end to all of the animal sacrifices. Because ultimately, our sin is against God. And God said, you know what? I will die. So that you never have to kill another animal. You never have to be afraid of me ever again. I will kill the hostility between you and I. I will take the punishment for the wrong that you did. And by doing so, Jesus put an end to the laws and the ordinances of the Old Testament. To be right with God, you don't need to be circumcised. To be right with God, you need to trust in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on your behalf, whether you are a Gentile or you are a Jew. And what's amazing is Paul says, this is the hope that you and I have, that we are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And that is for the Jew and the Gentile. In fact, it is for everybody. But the amazing thing, friend, if you can really believe this, and this is hard for our world to hear, is that if people are reconciled to God, if sinners are reconciled to God, immediately they're what? They are reconciled to others. There's a vertical reconciliation between you and God. And then what Paul has the audacity to say is that Jesus tore down the wall of hostilities between all peoples. The racial divide was Jew and Gentile. And there were a myriad of ways that Jews were to be marked off as distinct. Uh, If you were to go into the Old Testament times, if you were to, you know, live, or if you were to be alive in Jesus' day and you went in Jerusalem, what's in the center of Jerusalem? Anybody know? What building's in the middle of Jerusalem? It's not there today. Hadn't been there since AD 70. But if you went to Jerusalem during Jesus' day or Paul's day, what was in the middle of the city? The temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. The temple, right? That's what a temple is. It's where heaven and earth meet. It's where God enters our physical world. But did you know this? If you were alive in Paul or Jesus' day, they had built an extra partition in the temple. And you know what it did? It blocked off Gentiles from going any further. In fact, archaeologists recently have found the sign where it says if any Gentile gets any closer to the temple than this specific wall, their death is on their hands. You know what they did? They made a court of Gentiles and then they said, Gentiles, you better not cross this because he's our God, not yours. And if you cross this line, buddy, you may end up dead. And what the gospel has the audacity to say is Jesus Christ on the cross ripped that partition wall to shreds. And now any Gentile can go and commune with God Friends, these are fighting words. In Acts 21, Paul, who's writing these words, you know why he's in prison? You know, Ephesians, you know, he, Paul's writing from, from prison. You know why he's in prison? You know, what, you know what he did that was so bad that threw him in prison? He brought a Gentile past that wall, and a riot erupted. Paul says, there is no wall. There is no partition. Christ has put the hostility to death. We see the world as divided. God sees he's making a new humanity, not based on outward signs like your racial group or your ethnic color or anything, but a new humanity where everyone is defined by if they bow the knee to King Jesus or not. So the question is, friend, are you in that new humanity? Do you bow the knee to King Jesus? If you do, you are part of that new humanity, that new man. You're no longer a part of the world that's divided. You are part of the world that is reconciled to God. Let me just finish up verses 19, to, 19 through 22. What does this mean? Right? What does this all mean? Well, verse 19, Paul says, So then, if you are a Gentile, but you have faith in Jesus, if you're anything like me, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are what? fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what does Paul say? What does this mean for our world? What does this mean for you and me? Well, let me just finish with this. Um, I'm trying to think. How I don't want to say it. Um, We live out of our metaphors. I'll start with that. We live by the metaphors that we tell ourselves, more than we think. We live by our metaphors, right? Um, The easiest example to prove this point is, um, have you ever seen that movie, The Sound Sound of Music? Who's the dad? Anybody know Captain Von Trapp? Have you seen The Sound of Music? Some of you are looking at me like you've never heard of this movie. It's a great movie. You'll love it. I won't sing any of it like I did last week, but, you know, I could. The dad, Captain Von Trapp, he is a naval captain, which makes no sense, because he's from Austria, which is a landlocked European country. Never understood, when he's like, Captain Von Trapp of the Austrian Navy, I'm like, what? It's like having a naval base in Nebraska. It's like, all right, I guess, if you want to do that, you can. The point being, Naval Captain Von Trapp is a widower. His wife is dead. He has a bunch of kids. And how does he parent his kids? Anybody remember? He has a little naval whistle and he treats his kids like they're little sea cadets, right? Because he's living out of a certain metaphor. I am a captain. My crew is my family. And is that any way to parent? No, it's no way to parent. And that's what Maria has come to do is show him how to really parent, right? But right now, the metaphor he's living out of is I am a naval captain. These are my you know, sea cadets. But that's not the right metaphor. So... What I want to suggest to you is Paul finishes this passage and he's trying to get you to think differently about racial divides that people see. And what he does is he gives you many metaphors to sort of live by. They're meant to expand your imagination, your divine imagination. The first one in verse 19 is he says what? If you feel isolated, if you feel alone, if you feel alone in Christ, you are not. You are not a stranger. You are not alone. You are not an alien. You are a citizen in God's city. And what is God's city? He's, he's careful. He doesn't say you're all Jews now. That would be silly because they're Gentiles. What he says is you are citizens. And what's the great city of God that all of the Gentiles can join? Well, Psalm 86 says it's the city of Zion the city of God. This is why many black churches in the South are called Mount Zion Baptist Church. Because they're remembering that they are full citizens of God's city. And Paul says, you are, don't live by the metaphor that you are alone. Live by the metaphor that you are citizens of Zion. The second metaphor that he gives is he says, you are like a household you're in the household of God. Do you see that? And he gives this metaphor uh, of a home, right? A building, a home. And he says, of course, that the foundation is the apostles and prophets. That's the New Testament apostles and prophets. But of course, if we are like a home, what is the cornerstone of the house? If we're a house, Jesus is the cornerstone. And then the apostles come and they give us the New Testament. And we are built together into a beautiful house, right? Uh, Peter in 1 Peter says it this way, we're like living stones. So if you're a Christian, one of the metaphors you should be living in is you are one of the living stones in the house of God. You are citizens of Zion. You are a piece of the house. You have a critical part to play. You are not alone. You are not isolated. You are not alienated. You are joined together with other Christians in the household of God. Notice he doesn't say, if you take your member (laughs) vows, You are automatically, by your faith in Jesus, united to other believers. And the last thing he does to me, which is my absolute favorite, is he says that we are being built into a what? A holy temple. And then in verse 22, he gives us another beautiful uh, Trinitarian formula. In Christ, we are being built into a dwelling place for God the Father by the Spirit. What does it mean that you and I are the temple? Well, if you can remember back, the temple is the physical place on earth where heaven and earth meet. If you were a Jew and you lived in the Old Testament times and you wanted to go where God was, where did you go? You went to Jerusalem. And then you went where? Up to Jerusalem. And then you went where? Up to the temple. That's where God's unique presence was. But now what Paul is telling us is that we can find God anywhere because God is now dwelling within us, the church. Whether you are a Jew or you are a Gentile, where is the temple? Friend, you and I, by faith in Jesus, we are the temple. We are where God dwells. I mean, if you don't believe me, look over, flip over to 1 Corinthians for just a second. This is not the only place in the Bible that this teaches this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And uh, I will be more specific grammatically as to how you should hear this because the yous are plural. Whoop, so it means y'all, <laughs> potentially all y'all. Paul is talking to Christians and he says, do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Friends, this is part of the amazing newness of Christianity. If you were going around and you were telling people about Jesus, you could say like, hey, you can be reconciled to God. You can have faith in the one true God. And they say, well, what about the other gods? You'd be like, oh, they're all made up. They're totally fake. They're liars and they're deceivers. Don't worship those gods. Worship the one true God. He made all people. And they say, okay, well, um, where do I make sacrifices you know, I make sacrifices to Diana and all these other gods. Where do I make a sacrifice? Oh, you don't have to make any more sacrifices. He became the sacrifice for you. He died so you wouldn't have to. He shed his blood so you never have to worry about making another sacrifice ever again. And I guess if you want to make a sacrifice, just give him your whole life. Give him your whole heart. That's the kind of sacrifice he's looking for. And you say, okay, well, uh, where's the temple? Where do I go worship this God? And they say, there is no temple. Where are the temple? Where does heaven and earth meet? It meets in the hearts of believers. Where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. Paul says, don't you know you are the temple of God? That God's spirit dwells within you? Um, Friends, this is what the church is. The church is the dwelling place of God. (laughs) Uh, You know, we could talk all about the horrible racial history of the church. Okay, we could talk all about the failures of the modern church, but Friends, I don't want you to think about the failures of the church for just a second. What I want you to think about is the view that God has of the church, the way that Paul is talking about the church right now. When I say the church, I don't mean our church. I mean, capital C church, the church of Jesus Christ, because this is an incredibly beautiful vision. Um, And the only way I can explain it is by way of analogy. A few months ago at Camp Levi, I took Levi to the, to the coast, which now that I'm an adopted Oregonian, I have learned to not call the beach because whatever's out here, it's not the beach, it is the coast. And in August, I went to the beach and I have Levi with me and we get up to the water and then he wants to go further up into the sand and we get to the part where the water is just, you know, I don't know, two inches deep. And as I'm looking down, I remember, it's seared in my memory, the water that's only like an inch or two deep, it's crystal clear. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know that the Oregonian coast could look this clear. Like, it looks like there's nothing there, except for just a couple of ripples. Like, I'm looking at my feet like there's nothing there. And then, of course, you know, if you could join me on the beach, the coast, if we look at our feet, it looks like there's nothing there. But if we lift our eyes up, we see what? The depths of the Pacific Ocean the realm of whales and squids, the place that the islands of Hawaii burst right out of through the surface, the place where tsunamis and rogue waves come from. And if I could swim across it, I'd end up in Japan or somewhere cool. I'd want to go on vacation. I think a lot of times when we look at the church, it's so easy to look at the here and now, what's going on now, all of its faults. And it looks like there's nothing. It just looks like it's nothing. But friends, it's like you're looking at your feet and you're like, I don't think the ocean's that great. (laughs) Look up. See the ocean. We are the dwelling place of God. His spirit is here among us. You are the temple of the living God. He has died for you. He has broken down all of the racial barriers that humanity has constructed. He has torn down all of the laws in the Old Testament that we've got to follow to know God. He says, you don't have to do that. Just have faith in Jesus. And it is for everyone. That message is for every person on the planet. I'll finish with, I really will finish this time. About eight years ago, eight or nine years ago, I don't know, several years ago, I uh, I was a youth pastor. All these lonely teenagers, you know what I mean? Lonely middle schoolers and high schoolers, all trying to figure out where they fit. What group are they gonna be a part of? And like a lot of youth groups, I took them on a mission trip. Anybody ever been on an international mission trip? I took them on a mission trip to Costa Rica, to San Jose, which is the capital of Costa Rica. Some of you may have been there. And uh, we went and we worked with the church plant. Uh, A local Costa Rican man had started a church in a very poor community. And so we were helping them do things like, you know, vacation Bible school. And we set up a medical clinic and we even did like a dental clinic. And we like hosted, you know, Bible studies that night. And my youth group kids, they even raised money for ovens. You know why they raised money for ovens? So they could gift the ovens to the women in the community so they could bake bread and have an income for their families. It was a very proud, a very proud moment, right? Uh, for me as a youth pastor. But one year, I went there three times. Uh, my last year, We uh, showed up at the church plant, and you know, we've got the medical clinic thing going on, and then we've got Vacation Bible School, but then some other church showed up. But it was cool, because they were another Presbyterian church. So we were gonna get along like peas in a pod, right? Except this Presbyterian church was from California, (laughs) okay? And that doesn't register with y'all, but from where I'm from, That's a pretty big cultural divide to go from the South to this Californian Presbyterian church. And I was like, I don't know if this is gonna work. And then y'all, the Californian church, guess what? It was actually a Korean church. And their youth group were all native Korean speakers. And their pastor spoke English, but most of their youth group didn't. And most of my youth group was barely squeaking out Spanish, (laughs) let alone Korean. And so here we are, southern white kids, Korean Californians, working to encourage a church in Costa Rica. And to add another beautiful wrinkle to it, my favorite part about that church plant was actually that church planter that started the church, he was ethnically Costa Rican, but the people that he was serving, they all lived near the old city dump. It was the worst part of you know, San Jose. Nobody wanted to live there, and so that's why the poor people lived there because the property value was low, Right? Except the people that lived in that part of San Jose, guess what? They weren't Costa Rican. They were Nicaraguans who had crossed the border illegally. I remember talking to one of my really politically minded youth group kids one day, and we're walking around, and he goes, well, you know, they're all Nicaraguan, they're not Costa Rican, so stop calling them Ticos, because that's not what they are. And he goes, you mean they're illegal immigrants? (laughs) They're not supposed to be here. And I said, you're not in your country anymore, buddy. So all that to say, we had a Costa Rican guy who was not paid a cent to be the pastor, loved those Nicaraguan migrants so much that he planted a church for them, even though he benefited very little. And then he pulled together these Korean Californians and these white North Carolinians. And then one day... We all gathered together to pray. And I didn't close my eyes the whole prayer. I just looked around. Saw all these different people. And you know what I saw? The temple of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have torn down the wall dividing all peoples. Lord, we pray that more and more we would see others and we would see your church from your vantage point. Father, thank you for putting to death the hostility between people. Thank you for bringing us near to you by what you did on the cross. Lord, more and more, we want to see people amazed at your death and your reconciliation of this broken world. Father, give us eyes to see. And Lord, we build our lives on your word. Amen.